We have a lot to praise our Lord for. Let's uh, continue to praise him in prayer before we open up the word together. Dear Lord, we do bless your name, Lord. Make us a people who values you um, above all else, that no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter the um, comfort or the tragedy that is taking place, Lord, may we be those who have valued you above all else, such that we are able to praise you even in the midst of sorrow, and we are to, able to praise you even in the midst of um, great comforts that still our eyes are on you because we value you more than the comfort we are experiencing. And we thank you, Lord, that you are such a God, supreme in value, inestimably valuable, Lord. Um, you are that pearl of great price that we have sold everything to possess, that we have turned our back on everything else and worship you alone as our God. And Lord, we know that there are many times when we stumble in that, when we place other things ahead of you, when we allow other things to sit in the throne of our heart instead of you. And Lord, I just pray that this morning would be a time where your spirit through your word is working in us to, to open our eyes to those idols that we need to kick off the throne of our hearts such that that space is given to you alone. Lord, may you be at work in us, pruning us, making us the sons and daughters of yours that you want us to be. May you get what you are worthy of out of our lives, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 22 this morning. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 11, and I will read verses 17 through 22 for us. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Many of the promises that God has made to us, in large part, are promises that lay beyond the grave. That is, they're promises that we can't see physically the fulfillment of in this world but we can see them through faith. And when we're not walking by faith, then death looms large in our minds and it becomes the end of all things for us. And when we're not walking by faith, the coffin is just that, it's a coffin. It's the finish line, it's the end, it's the final resting place. But when we are walking by faith, then we realize that death is not the end. When we're walking by faith, death is no longer something to be obsessively thinking about in fear, 
Death is no longer something that we are so terrified at that we can't even speak of it, can't even think of it. Because we realize that death is not the end and that the coffin is more like a chrysalis or a cocoon that we know that the Lord will raise our bodies up out of. And last week we looked at verses 13 through 16 where we saw that the patriarchs were men who walked by faith. They were men characterized by looking beyond death. They were characterized by seeking a country of their own that God had promised to them. And when we come to verses 17 through 22, the preacher is continuing on this theme of dying in faith. And remember, we learned the secret of how to die in faith. It's by seeking after Christ first and his kingdom, seeking after that country. And these patriarchs, they were seeking that, and so they were able to die in faith. And in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, the preacher zooms in on the lives of these patriarchs to specific episodes of their lives that are put on exhibition for us as examples of what it looks like to walk by faith even when you're facing death. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they are the ones we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to see how each one of these men kept believing in God even when they were in the very throes of death. With Abraham, it's the death of his son that he's facing. So we're going to learn even more about what it looks like to walk by faith. And we're going to learn from these men. And it's important that we remember what it means to walk by faith. Because when you look at verses 17 through 22, as he has been throughout this chapter, he's repeating that same phrase, that two-word phrase over and over again. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Isaac did this. Jacob did this. Joseph did this. All by faith. So what does that mean? Well, we need to just remind ourselves of what verse 1 says, this definition of faith that the preacher has given us. Remember, he says, Now faith is the assurance or the reality of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. Now, if that's what faith is, then to walk by faith is to live your life based on the assurance of things hoped for. It's to live your life based on the conviction of things not seen. It's to live your life oriented to what, you've hope, what you're hoping for and what you can't see. Our invisible God who's made us promises that lie beyond the grave. To walk by faith is to live your life in view of what is coming. And the patriarchs did this. And it's very instructive for us to consider what verses 17 through 22 have to say to us because they tell us that if we walk by faith, taking God at his word, as the patriarchs did, then we will be able to live in two very distinctive ways. Two very distinctive ways. And the first one we'll see in verses 17 through 19. If we walk by faith, the way that Abraham walked by faith, we will be able to willingly sacrifice to the God who raises the dead. That's the first distinctive way of living that will characterize our lives if we walk by faith. We will willingly sacrifice to the God who raises the dead. So let's first look at verses 17 and 18. 
Again, the preacher says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. So verse 17 tells us right off the bat that Abraham was tested. And we know that the preacher is referring back to a famous passage that I'm sure we are all familiar with, but I think it would help us to know what he's talking about if we turn back to Genesis 22 and we look at this great test that God put Abraham through. Genesis 22. And I want to go to the trouble of reading this whole passage because it is going to illustrate better than anything I can babble on about up here what the preacher is talking about. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then when they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, And have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. 
And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I want you to keep your finger in Genesis 22 because we'll be returning there frequently just to observe what the text says. But we see that Abraham was tested. Now what was the test? Why did God command Abraham to sacrifice his son to him? Well, the test was to see whether or not Abraham was going to trust God enough, value God enough, to not withhold his own son from him. That was the test. And we need to understand how high the stakes were. And to understand that, I'm just going to run through the events that have transpired up until the point of this chapter. You don't have to turn to these references. I'm just going to walk through it with you. But remember, Genesis 12, that is when God first comes to Abraham and speaks to him of the promise. That he promises Abraham, who was named Abram at that time, he promises him that he's going to make him a great nation and that he's going to give him descendants as innumerable as the dust of the earth. And then when we get to Genesis 15, we find Abraham a little befuddled as to how God is going to bring this about because he has no children. And you kind of need children in order to have enough offspring to make a great nation. So he's thinking that a man in his house named Eleazar, he's going to be the heir of his household. But God comes to Abraham again and he says, no, Eleazar will not be your heir. I'm going to give you an heir of your own flesh and blood. A son. And how did Abraham respond? He believed. And God credited that to him as righteousness. But time rolled on, the years passed by, and he still had no children. So in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah get the idea that, well, nothing's happening this way. Maybe. Maybe uh, the son is to come, Sarah says, through her maidservant, Hagar. So Abraham and Hagar get together, and Ishmael is born. So Abraham has a son. But then when we come to Genesis 17 and 18, God tells Abraham, what I promised you is not going to come through Ishmael. It's going to come through a son born to Sarah. Now at that time, Abraham and Sarah were not spring chickens. Sarah was 90, and Abraham was 100 years old. So at first they laughed, but they they did believe. And we find that Isaac is born. And then we come to Genesis 21, and we find that Isaac is weaned, but then we see Ishmael mocking Isaac. And Sarah sees this young whippersnapper doing that to her son who she bore in her old age, and she says, I want Hagar and Ishmael gone, out of the house. And obviously this distresses Abraham. He doesn't want to send his son away. But God again comes to him and says, whatever Sarah tells you, do that. Because everything I've promised you, that's going to come through Isaac, not through Ishmael. 
So when we get to Genesis 22, which we read, Ishmael is gone. He's out of the picture when it comes to the promises of God. And all of the promises that God has made to Abraham, all of that hangs on Isaac alone. So in verse 2 of Genesis 22, when God speaks of Abraham's son Isaac as being his only son, the son he loves, Isaac, he's not overstating it. And when the preacher says in, uh, back in Hebrews 11, verse 17, that this is Isaac's only begotten son, that's not an overstatement. He is the one on whom all the promises hang. And it's this son that God is commanding Abraham to sacrifice. It's not an overstatement to say that Isaac would be the most precious person to Abraham on the face of the planet. What Abraham holds most dear and God is commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son. So when we as parents read this chapter it's very difficult for us to understand it and to even to accept it because to a parent Next to your spouse, your kids are the most precious thing on the planet to you. And it's one thing to lose a child to some tragic event, but it's another thing to take the life of your child by your own hand. That's unthinkable. So we read Genesis 22 and we wonder, how could Abraham do this? Why did he do this? Well, if you look in Genesis 22 again, The answer is pretty plainly given in verse 12. What does the Lord testify about Abraham when Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son? He says, now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The reason why Abraham did this was because he feared God. He valued God even more than his own son. But the preacher, back in Hebrews 11, he sees in this account an additional reason. Look at verse 19 of Hebrews 11. Hopefully you've kept your finger in both spots. But verse 19, the preacher goes on, he says, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So the preacher sees that Abraham believed that God was able to raise the dead, and that's why he willingly offered up his son, Sacrifice was going to sacrifice his son. But we read Genesis 22, and it probably escaped our notice where resurrection is mentioned there. It's not plainly obvious, but the preacher reads the word of God so carefully that when he comes to verse 5, Back in Genesis 22, he sees resurrection there. Look at verse 5 again. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there. Go over there to do what? What is Abraham fully committed to do when he goes over there? That place he's talking about. He's fully committed to slay his son, to offer his son to God as a burnt offering. There's no going back for Abraham. It's going to happen. But notice what he continues to say in verse 5. 
He says, I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Now that verb return in the Hebrew, that's a first person plural. I know I'm straining your grammatical uh, knowledge there, but that means we. He's saying we will return to you. He's not saying we're going to go over there and I alone am going to come back to you. He's saying me and Isaac are going to go over there and then we are going to come back down that mountain together to you. So the preacher reads that and he sees in that that Abraham fully expected God to raise his son from the dead after he did what he needed to do. That's how much Abraham believed God. Now, when you read from Genesis 1 up to Genesis 22, there's no indication that God has performed resurrections up until this point. So it seems interesting that resurrection would be what occurs to Abraham as he's facing this test. But I want you to turn to Romans 4, keep your fingers in both spots. You've got ten fingers, I'm not asking too much of you. Romans 4, and starting in verse 16, Paul brings up an earlier episode in Abraham's life. Romans 4, verse 16, speaking of justification by faith, Paul says, For this reason, it, that is justification, is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So, what is Paul referring back to? He's referring back to Genesis 15 and 16, and 17 and 18, where God promises a son to Abraham, and then later promises that that son will come through his wife Sarah. Now, what does Abraham think about himself, reproductively speaking, in the words of Paul? He thinks he's dead. He is not physically capable of fathering a child. And then he considers Sarah, who is childless up to that point, and at the age of 90, certainly she's not going to start bearing children now. 
So he considers himself as good as dead, reproductively speaking. But it's at that extreme old age that God says, I'm going to give you a son through your wife, Sarah. And Abraham doesn't say, no, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. No, he believes that it's going to happen. And then what does happen? He experiences God's resurrection power at work in his own life, his own body, and in the body of his wife as he enables them physically to be able to have a child together. So first, Abraham believed, and then he experienced God's resurrection power. And we see this same pattern at work in Genesis 22, when God has promised, and he hasn't retracted this promise, that he is going to give Abraham, through Isaac, as many descendants as the, the stars in heaven and sand on the seashore. But he's telling him to kill his son, to offer his son as a sacrifice. And Abraham doesn't say, well, God must not be telling the truth. He must be retracting his promise. No, God never took his promise back. Abraham believes he will do what he promised. And that forces him to believe that God is going to raise his son from the dead. He believes that about God before experiencing the reality of that. Faith preceded the resurrection experience in both events. Abraham believed that God was so faithful to his promises that even if God told him to kill the very one through whom the promises would come, that God would raise him up from the dead just so that his promises would be fulfilled. And just as Abraham considered himself as good as dead, Isaac was considered by him to be as good as dead because he was committed to go to that mountain and slay his son. His son was as good as dead. But Abraham still believed. And Abraham, he took that knife and he was poised to kill his son. But when God said, no, stop, it was as if Abraham received his son back from the dead. So first he believed and then he experienced God's resurrection power. That's what the preacher says in verse 19 of Hebrews 11. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which, speaking of the dead, from which he also received him back. My translation goes on to say, received him back as a type. When we read Genesis 22 and we see a father giving up his only begotten son, what does that cause us to think about automatically? About God the Father giving up his only begotten son, only there was no one to stay his hand. He bruised his son, the Bible says. He slayed his son. He sacrificed his son fully, not figuratively, really. So this event foreshadows that. But we also, our thoughts don't stop only on the resurrection of Christ, but our thoughts go on reminding ourselves that God is a God who raises the dead, and so we proceed in our thoughts to think about our own resurrection, that God will raise us from the dead as well. And as Abraham first believed, and then he experienced God's resurrection power, so we, that same pattern, 
takes place in our lives. First, we believe that God is a God who raises the dead. First, we believe that God raised his son, Jesus, from the dead. And if we believe that he did that, we know that he will do that for us too. First is faith. We have believed. Now, the the experience of God's resurrection power is on the other side of the grave, and we will experience it. But first comes faith. We have to keep believing. And that's what these Hebrew believers that the preacher was writing to needed to remember because what were they facing? They were facing death through persecution. And they needed to remember that what God had promised them, eternal life, living with him on the new earth, that lay beyond the grave. And they had to believe that God was a God who raises from the dead. And they have to believe that Jesus is the forerunner for us. Can't abandon Jesus. He's the only one in whom we will be raised. And so it is for us. God's promises, you can take your finger out of Genesis now, but God's, God has promised us eternal life. But his promises lay beyond the grave. And when Jesus calls us to follow him, he is bidding us to come and die. Turn to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 10, verse 37. He says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now think of Abraham. Did Abraham love his son more than he loved God? No, because he didn't even withhold his son from God. Verse 38, And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. What does someone do with a cross? They die on it. Jesus is saying, take up your cross, follow me. He's saying, die and follow me. Verse 39, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Following Jesus means sacrificing what we hold most precious because he is even more precious. Jesus is the treasure in the field that by God's good, gracious providence we stumbled on and we realized, oh, I'm going to sell everything I have so I can have Christ. He is the pearl of great price that we have found that God has revealed to us for whom we are willing to sacrifice everything in order to get him. And that's what Abraham did. When Abraham was sacrificing or about to sacrifice his son, he was pretty much laying his own life down on the altar. And Isaac was bound up all his hopes and dreams. Isaac was the most precious person in the universe to him, except for one person, God. And God has promised us eternal life in his kingdom. But we need to understand that the road that leads to that kingdom runs straight through the valley of the shadow of death. That we're called to follow Christ. And Christ did not take any other route to the kingdom, but through death. And to follow him is to follow on that road through death. 
to that kingdom. Now, as a Christian, you may not die a martyr's death at the hands of a tyrannical government or at the hands of a headhunting tribe in a jungle, but if you're a Christian, your life is going to be a life of dying, dying to the lusts of your flesh, dying to what the world is telling you to do, demanding of you. You're going to be dying to all of that. Remember what Paul said? He said, I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. There's a well-known song called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. We sing it here sometimes. Though the song is well-known, the backstory behind it may not be as well-known. There's a tradition, uh, tradition story behind this song about how the lyrics to this song came to be. And it comes from the tradition of a man in India who had a wife and two children, and under the ministry of missionaries, he and his whole family, his wife and his two kids, they converted to Christ. They repented and they put their trust in Jesus. And when the elders of their village caught wind of what had happened, that these men had abandoned their former religion, this, this family rather, had abandoned their former religion and have started following Christ, they arrested this family. And they threatened the man. They said, if you don't renounce Christ, these archers here are going to shoot your kids. And this man, he responded, he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And there's no turning back. After watching his kids die, they threatened that they would kill his wife. And the man said, the world can be behind me, but the cross is still before me. And after he lost his wife, they threatened to kill him if he didn't recant. And he said, though no one is here to go with me, Still, I will follow Jesus. And then he followed his wife and his kids into glory. Now that's a hard story to listen to, but that is exactly the same kind of faith that Abraham was exhibiting when he laid his own son on that altar. And that is the faith that the preacher is calling us to live by. So, if we are walking by faith, we will willingly sacrifice to the God who raises the dead because we believe that he is able to raise the dead and that death cannot stop his promises from being fulfilled. The next point will be short. We spent a lot of time on that first point. But Isaac, you can imagine that he must have told this story about what happened to him and his dad. He must have passed that on to his son Jacob. And Joseph must have heard it from his dad. And we see these men, these descendants of Abraham, we see them exhibiting the very same kind of faith that Abraham exhibited. And we learn from them 
that if we walk by faith, there's a second distinctive way that we will live, and it's this. We will worshipfully speak of the God who raises the dead. We will worshipfully speak of the God who raises the dead. Let's look at verse 20. It says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Now these men, just as Abraham was staring death in the face and kept believing it was the death of his son he was facing, so each of these men, these episodes in their lives that the preacher is talking about, when these things happened, each of these men was staring death in the face. It's not explicit in verse 20 about Isaac, but when you go back, and we won't turn there, but if you want on your own to read about it, Isaac in Genesis chapter 27, where this is recorded, we find that he goes to bless his sons because he knows that death could happen at any time. He says, I don't know when I'm going to die, so I need to do this now. And he sought to bless his sons. And that blessing, that thing that he spoke over his sons, was on account of him believing firmly that God was going to do what he promised. Even though he was going to die, that promise was going to be fulfilled. And then Jacob What you read in verse 21 here can be found at the end of Genesis 47 and on into Genesis 48. But Jacob says that as he was dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph. He spoke a blessing over them, a blessing that was based on the promise of God. And it wasn't spoken as a mere wish, like I hope God does this. It was spoken prophetically based on the promises of God that this is going to happen because God is faithful. And then he worshipped. He worshipped. The faithfulness of God led him to worship even in the face of death. And then Joseph, verse 22, you can read about that in Genesis 50, that when Joseph was dying, he also said some things. He made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. That even though he was dying in Egypt, he knew that God was going to bring the people up out of Egypt to that land that God had promised them. And he so believed it that he made the sons of Israel promise to carry his bones with them to that land when they got there. It was not an if, it was a when for Joseph. So these words, the way these men spoke show that they had a rock-solid confidence in God's faithfulness even though they were going to die before they could experience the fulfillment of it. And as these men did, so can we. That in the face of death, because we believe that God is able to raise us from the dead, we can behave that same way when we're facing death, whether it's on our deathbed or when we're having to die to what my flesh wants and what the world wants and what the devil wants. How can we behave? We can worship in the face of death. 
knowing that even though the things of mind that are in this world are being taken away, I still possess what really matters. I possess what's eternal. I belong to Christ, and we can worship. Even on our deathbed, we can worship. And we can speak to those who are watching us, watching how we live our lives dying to ourselves or watching how we die on our beds. And they'll watch how we're living and how we're dying by faith, and they will ask, why do you have such a hope in you? And we can speak. We can warn them what will happen if they die in their sins, that there is a lake of fire waiting for those who die in their sins. But then we can woo them, and we can say that God has made promises that he offers you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the first one who he raised from the dead to life everlasting, this God who became man and bore our sins upon his body on the tree where he was crucified and died in our place, he has risen again. And he has promised to take you to be with his Father if you would turn from your sins and you would trust in him. Jesus has taken the sting of death. Death, apart from Christ, is an experience of the wrath of God. God took that Jesus took that sting, that wrath, upon himself. So that for the believer, death is no longer an experience of the wrath of God. Death is merely a dark veil to walk through. And on the other side is the eternal day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the grave is not the end for us. So we ought to live by faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that teaches us what it looks like to walk by faith. Thank you, Lord, for all of these examples in Scripture that you've given us. There's so much to be learned from how these men walked by faith, how you enabled them to live, Lord, and we want to live the same way. Lord, may we trust you so much, value you so much, that we hold nothing back from you, just as Abraham didn't even hold back his son. May we hold nothing back. May you be the one we worship, Lord. And may you give us great confidence as we die to ourselves every day and for that coming day when we lay on our deathbed. Help us to be exercising faith, believing that you are the God who raises the dead and that what you have promised us will come to pass. And that though our souls are going to depart from our body and be with you, yet you will raise our bodies up from the grave, reunite them with our souls, and we will spend forever on the new earth with you. Lord, help us to look forward to that, to live in the light of that, we pray in Jesus' name.